The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker, who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Phil. I'm Philip. I'm an alcoholic. Wow, what a great thing to speak in front of the Atlanta group. What an honor that is to be. I mean, I mean maybe I'm doing something right. I have no idea. Um, and uh, why or why, I'm asking myself, didn't I take the blue pill? No reference to that? Okay, so what that means is, what that means is today that I'm sober, right? My sobriety date's August, uh, God, what the heck is it? August 4th, 2018, and I have a sponsor, I have a home group. I'm out in um, uh, Sahara Club in Bogota, New Jersey, and we do big book studies there. We have a small group, and we invite everyone down. We have a meeting every night at 7 o'clock, but I, you know, I moved there around uh, when my second kid was born, around 12 years ago, because I couldn't live in a, a one-bedroom apartment anymore. Now, my name's Philip. I'm an alcoholic. And um, just by a show of hands, how many people in this room were adjusted by me? Can I? I see a few. Okay, I got you. All right, I see a few. Excellent, excellent. Whew. Break the ice a little, right? Yeah, I'm in the holistic uh, health field, holistic medicine, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, uh, chiropractic, physical therapy, all that fun stuff. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, how, you know, where I'm at today is part of why I got here. But I do want to, oh, let me thank Daniel for asking me to speak. Daniel, wherever you are, thank you. And Preacher for an excellent job chairing this group this, this term. Amazing, amazing. And uh, Ron Black, for you taking me deep into your bosom, lovingly, <laughs> to bring me back into this fold. You know, this isn't my first time here. I know a lot of folks here, a lot of new faces here. It's great to see everyone. I came in here originally, my first surprise, I bless you, sir, by the way, um, was originally 2003. And uh, I didn't even know I was an alcoholic. You know, I just had this thing where I was always in pain. I didn't sleep. My eyes always twitched. I always had stomach problems. I was sick all the time. And I didn't realize that a part of that, you know, I was drinking vodka every day. I like Stolichnaya. That was my drink of choice. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, like I guess it's a pretty normal, effed up kind of existence I had, you know. But then, the, you know, I'm, I'm 32 years old and something happens. No, wait, I got married then, no. Um, I was 39 and I couldn't take this immense amount of pain that was in my life. And I'm talking, I'm talking psychic pain. I'm going to a psychopharm, uh, that's a, 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 a psychiatrist who could prescribe drugs, a psychologist, a social worker. Um, I had no idea what was going on with me. I was like a splinter in my mind all the time, right? And all those nice people, all those kind people would ask, you know, about the drinking. Are you drinking? Um, are you doing drugs? All that. And of course, hindsight's 2020, and that's the one thing I would never want to separate. That would be an impossibility. So why, of course, would I mention that? And I never did. And I remember being, is, is it better? Okay, okay. And I remember, um, my God, it was, uh, uh, it was 2000, it was around 2003, or just before that, or that, uh, that fall, or that late summer. And I couldn't move my neck anymore. And I went to a chiropractor, and he put me on his table. Now, I'm not saying chiropractic is a way to the 12 steps or can, uh, you know, outdo that or bring you into a, a conscious contact with God, but I'm just saying in my case, something happened on that table. And in that moment, I remember I was able to grieve my mother's death. And it was something that I was floored by when I was eight years old. You know, she died of cancer, and I watched a beautiful woman deteriorate. And I thought, why would God do that to me? But that, all that doesn't make an alcoholic. But that started the defense mechanisms that years 
of being a, a mean kid, um, an angry person, and all these layers of defense mechanisms just kept piling up. And I didn't realize that when I put booze in my system, it wasn't about getting drunk. It was just an alleviation of that splinter in my mind I was talking about. But it was so effective. It wasn't fun and games. It was something that was a necessity, but I didn't know it. But anyway, when I was on that chiropractor's table, right, I began to have feelings of emotion. Sorry, sorry. And um, I began to have emotions, and I began to feel safe with the emotions. And to me, that was the first time I ever experienced what was called a psychic change. We call it here a spiritual experience, a change of consciousness, a redirection of ideas and emotions. They're cast aside for new guiding uh, ideas. And, and, and the heart opens and the mind opens, and from what I'm told, it's a thank you. It's a whole lifelong experience. So, after that moment, when I experienced that, I understood I had to give up drinking, I had to give up the womanizing, I had to give up the fantasy playing, because that's what my life had been up to that point. And, you know, I'm 39 years old, can you blame me? It's been effective, I'm working, I'm married, I have children, you know, I have two children at this point. And, um, but the thing was, here's the, here's the thing where I come in and I advocate a group like Alcoholics Anonymous, or fundamental groups that do the literature, that follow the text, that follow the, the blueprints and the mechanics of the 12 steps, right? Because that experience, as profound and as deep, and going into my soul and my heart, as strong as that was, it was unsustainable. Now, I'm 60 years old, so we used to have televisions back in the 70s and the 80s. When you shut them off, it was like a quasar, and it would shut down. I don't know if anyone knows what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm getting some nuts. Okay. And that's what was going on. And my ex-wife, well, my wife at the time said, why don't you try AA? And at that moment, the interesting thing was, all those nice doctors and therapists and friends of mine, it all came together. And AA is a, in a, 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 a program of attraction, right? And I thought to myself of the guys out in Montauk who I surf with, right? They were surfers, they were actors, they were male go-go dancers. And that's what, that was the click. These guys are sober. What did you do? I want to do that too. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, it was down in Halston Street. It's down the Lower East, um, midway between East Side and Soho. But all I, when I saw those steps, and I heard people talking about God and spiritual experience and sobriety and all the things that we talk about here that come from all these different, you know, areas of influence, it just made sense. Peggy, when she's here, spoke about that it's, it's music that I hear, right? It's, it's nothing discernible, but it makes sense in my soul. And when I, when I experienced that, I knew that was the way to go. And here's the thing. I, I was confused because there's a lot of, oh God, misleading messages in Alcoholics Anonymous. Lots. And there's a lot of easy ways out and uh, shortcuts and, and that kind of thing, sidestepping. And I tried it for about a year, and when I came to Atlantic Group, that's what really made sense and sent me in the trajectory. Just do the work. I don't have to attach a, an opinion on it, an emotion, anything like that. I just have to get off my fat ass and start doing the mechanics of the work. And what happens is over time, right, it's not that big spiritual awakening that I, I had again, but I look back and it's that what they call that educational variety, and I see that Philip is growing. That's the cool thing. And here's the bad thing. Here's the good news and the bad news about Alcoholics Anonymous for me. And I'm watching the time on you. So, yep. Um, it was so effective. After about six or seven years, I started to hate being sober. 
And I said, I'm going to get the most militant sponsor in the most, in the most strict uh, group here. And I did that. And what happened about two years later, uh, I'm out to dinner with my, um, my Brazilian um, nanny and an ex-girlfriend. Uh, and the table wasn't ready. And the guy said, do you want to have a drink at the bar? And I said, I picked up the drink menu. I said, I'll have every one of those. And I took a sip of those drinks. And I said, what? the heck was I depriving myself of this for, right? And I drank for another five years. That's why my sobriety date's 2018. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the thing. It wasn't bad going out. In fact, it was an amazing time, right? But, that, but what does that even mean? Because I base amazing and I base good on physical construct. The arm candy, the money in my pocket, how tall am I, the car I'm driving. And I realized the difference between there is no good or bad. There's either am I conscious, am I in fear, or am I in my heart, and am I with God? And that's the whole thing that I come, if I have one message for the people in the back or whomever, it's all about that I have, I'm not drinking vodka every day or doing cocaine to chase the vodka to keep me awake because there's a higher power in my life. And that higher power has nothing to do with me being pious or religious or saintly or anything like that. It's a new way of thinking, it's a new consciousness, and it's by me helping out the next guy. And because I have the fundamental equipment that I was taught here through these amazing sponsors that I've had here, through the work I continue to do, and by the way, all the stuff that I do in Alcoholics Anonymous, all the stuff, I don't have to like it, I don't have to believe in it, I don't have to want to do it, but I just have to do it, and there's no downside. Thanks for letting me share. Our second 10-minute speaker is Perry. Hi, I'm Perry. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is February 25th, 2016. My home group is Saturday Beginners. We meet Saturday mornings downtown at 1030. I have a sponsor. I sponsor women. I've been through the 12 steps, and I've taken other women through the 12 steps. Um, and I'm currently living in 10, 11, and 12. So I'm just going to try to keep it simple, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. I am I'm one of those alcoholics, so I do believe that I was born an alcoholic. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that I came out of the womb holding a drink, but it means for me that, you know, I, I was born with, it's like I was born with my nerve endings on the outside. Like, I can look back on times of being, like, even in kindergarten, five years old, and going, like, that kid really could have used a drink. Um, and, you know, I just, I, it was, I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. Like, I missed a day of school where I didn't get the instructions and I didn't get the manual that everyone else had. And I just was somehow, I was always one step behind. Um, and my alcoholism has manifested in many ways throughout my life. Um, for tonight, I'll stick to the alcohol part because singleness of purpose. But I, I remember the first time I got drunk, it uh, wasn't the first time I drank, but the first time I got really drunk, I was 16 years old, and I had that I, I have arrived moment, you know, that I, I felt like everyone thought I was cool and funny and cute, and I just, I spent the rest of my drinking trying to chase how I felt that first night that I got drunk. The rest of my drinking I spent trying to be like, but remember that time that it was really fun and great? Um, but for me, what my drinking really w looked like was it was fun, then it was fun with consequences, and then it was just consequences. And this was all before I had even graduated high school. Um, I got sober at 21. 
That was not the first time that I had been introduced to AA. I do have two sober alcoholic parents um, who are also not the reason that I'm an alcoholic. That was something I had to come to terms with too. And I was dragged to my first meeting when I was 19. Um, it was the third time that I had been hospitalized for alcohol and overdosing. Um, the first time being in high school. So by the time I was in college, I was 19 years old, I was overdosing for the second time, being hospitalized for the third time. My mom flew down to New Orleans, uh, dragged me to my first meeting. I did not go willingly. It was 7.15 in the morning. Um, I was maybe hungover. That would have been the most sober I would have been at that meeting. And I just, I don't really remember anything that anyone said in that meeting, but I remember that I knew that I felt safe. I knew that I could go back to AA. And for the next few years, while I did not get sober, I had no intention of getting sober, I would still go to that meeting. Like, I would wake, or I wouldn't really wake up, I would still be awake. And so I would drive to the 7.15 in the morning meeting, not sober, um, but I thought that no one knew. It was like, no one knows. Um, everyone knew. Um, and I would fall asleep, I would cry, I would just sit there and say nothing and stare at the floor, but I just went. I don't, I can't really say why I went other than that I did and I just knew that I could. Um, when I did get sober at 21, it was off my third overdose. The first two were accidents, the first one was intentional. Um, I woke up in a institution and I was like, this makes sense. Um, I was not surprised to be told where I was it was kind of, I always knew that I was crazy. It almost, it affirmed for me what I had thought that I always knew, was that I was crazy. There was something fundamentally wrong with me. It had been suggested to me previously that maybe what was wrong was that I was an alcoholic, um, but anytime someone suggested that to me, my response was, I'm gonna go drink and show you how not alcoholic I am. Um, because the idea of being an alcoholic was the worst thing. Like, I could've, I would've rather have been anything an alcoholic because to be an alcoholic would mean that I would have to give up drugs and alcohol and I was not at 21 I didn't think I was ready to do that but um, I came face to face with the choice of living or getting sober and I also really do believe for myself that for me to drink is to die the big book says that over any considerable time if things get worse never better and um, I don't really know how much worse things can, I mean, I could imagine how much worse things can get after <laughs> three overdoses, and I've seen how worse it can get for those around me, but um, I, I feel pretty comfortable enough in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think I'll keep coming back and doing the work. So what happened for me after I got sober, I had that, that small window of willingness. Um, thank you. That small window of willingness where it's like as quickly as it opens, it closes, and I just, I got lucky, my higher power was looking out for me, whatever you want to call it, because it definitely wasn't me that made it happen, but I, I found a sponsor, I got connected, um, I was in my senior year of college, I didn't know how to do anything, I did not know how to exist as a sober person. For so long, I had done everything not sober, and so I had to learn how to like have conversations with people how to inter how to interact how to like get up in the morning and make my bed i had to learn how to do all of these things because i just didn't know what i was doing um so i got this sponsor she you know took me through she took me through the steps it was pretty easy for me at that point to say yeah my life is unmanageable and i have no control over alcohol um and i'm powerless over alcohol 
Step two, I never I personally did not struggle so much with the God stuff. Um, and it was also, at that point, easy enough for me to believe that I was doing a pretty bad job running my life. Um, and so why not see if some, someone or something else could do it better? Uh, and the same with step three. I, you know, the first thing my sponsor told me to do prayer-wise was every morning when I wake up, say please, and every night when you go to bed, say thank you. And um, I still do that. You know, every night when I go to sleep, I say thank you, God, for keeping me sober another day. And every morning I say, please, God, help me stay sober. Um, I dragged my feet along my fourth step until there was a boy I wanted to date, and my sponsor said, well, why don't, you, why don't we do your fifth step before we start talking about dating? Um, takes four months and a Sunday afternoon to do a fourth step because I finished it, we scheduled it, and I did it, and I went on and dated that boy. And um, there's a reason why they make the suggestions of no dating in your first year of sobriety. Um, but I'm grateful for the experience. Nonetheless, I definitely learned a lot about myself and about how to show up in relationships, how not to show up in relationships. Because that's so much of what AA has taught me, is how to show up. You know, show up in at work, in my friendships, in romantic relationships. Um, I, you know, my alcoholism tells me that I'm alone and that I have to be alone and I will forever be alone. I come to AA, and what AA tells me is that that's not true. I don't have to be alone. I can choose to be alone. I mean, I didn't choose to be an alcoholic, but I can choose to be sober. I can choose to take the suggestions, and I can choose to do the work. Um, and I can choose to you know, let it go and let God. And I today have this life that is so a life beyond my wildest dreams. You know, when I got sober, or before I got sober, I would. Um, and I apologize if you've heard me talk about this before, but I would sit and I would stare at a blank Word document on my laptop that was supposed to be the application that I was doing for law school, and I, I couldn't do it. I would sit there, and I was so filled with fear and anxiety, and I just could not do it. And I was looking at everyone else around me getting ready to graduate college and go on and do all these things, and I was, all I could do was get drunk. Um, and it took a long time when my sponsor had me write, write, it, write out the fear, put it in a fear box, and eventually I was able to apply to law school. I went to law school. I did the bar, all that stuff, and um, I, get to, I get to be a lawyer today, and that is, that's a gift of sobriety. Like, I didn't do that by myself. I would like to think that I did that by myself, and my alcoholism tells me that I did it all by myself, but I did not do it all by myself. Me by myself, I would have been dead. Um, but today I get to you know, wake up every day and go to a job that I, I hate sometimes, but also that I love. And I get, to, I get to show up, and I get to be a worker among workers. And I get to work with other women, and I get to work with other alcoholics. And um, you know, my, I, my life has gotten so big. And there's also just, and I also I have to remember to bring AA into all my life. You know, I, it's easy also to be like, oh, well, AA doesn't need to come with me to work, or AA doesn't need to come with me to dinner with my friends, or wherever it is I'm going, but, um, but that's not true. You know, if I, if I can't bring the spiritual solution into all of my affairs, then I need to lessen my affairs, because this, this program isn't just, showing, isn't just teaching me how to show up at Alcoholics Anonymous, it's taught me how to show up in life, and um, I'm really grateful, so thank you. Our main speaker tonight is Chad. Okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Chad, an alcoholic. Hi, Chad. Um, 
I've been sober since April the 2nd of 2003. I'm going to give you a second. That means two weeks ago I picked up 20 years. Yeah. I'm going to be doing that every time I get behind the podium for like at least the next couple months. You know, That's, that's pretty cool. 20 years is a big one. Um, thank you, preacher, for asking me to come do this. And thank you, Cynthia, especially for driving us up here. I don't know if you guys can tell, but I'm not from here. I don't know what's funny about that. Where I come from, the idea of looking for a parking place is unheard of. We had three traffic lights in the whole town, and it was the big town in the area. That's in the corner of southeast Oklahoma. I've got a home group up here. Uh, it's a new home group for me. It's designed for living. We, we meet on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock in Neptune, New Jersey. And we're a big book study, and I want to welcome anybody to come check it out. Um, I've got a sponsor down in Austin, Texas, who I'm just crazy about, and I sponsor a lot of guys who are as crazy as I am, and uh, crazier, actually, crazier. Uh, um, what else do I need to tell you before we get started? I don't know, let's do an AA talk. Um, on page 29 in our big book, it says each individual uh, tells, I couldn't bring my book up here. What does it say? Help me out. Each individual in our personal stories tells how he developed a relationship with God in his, in his own language and from his own point of view. Read that and tell me how I did. Uh, that's my job up here. My job is to talk to you guys about how I established a relationship with God. But I want to tell you, to say it that way sounds to me like I'm taking way too much credit for it because that was never the intention. I didn't show up here to establish a relationship with God. As a matter of fact, I showed up here thinking that, that maybe this God idea was good enough for you guys who weren't quite as smart as me, but I could come here and I could kind of fake it because I knew one thing, I didn't want to drink anymore. Um, I come from a family, I was, I was loved, um, a loving family, but a dysfunctional family. And, and the, I'm, I'm going to describe it real quickly to you and we'll move on. Out of the six of us that I grew up with, five of us are members of 12-step fellowships. That's pretty good, right? Five out of six? That's impressive. And it's cool now because we sit around and talk recovery, you know. But getting there was a little chaotic. There was a lot of partying in my home, um, uh, a lot of chaos, a lot of fighting, and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, you said it. That's not what made me alcoholic. But, but I definitely got introduced to it early on. Um, I did pretty good as a kid. I, uh, I, I, I played some sports. I did well in school. I had friends. Got along well with teachers. I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble until right around, I don't know, sixth grade, seventh grade, and that thing started to happen. I see some heads nodding. You guys know what I'm talking about. I started to get a little bit uncomfortable. My head started talking to me in kind of some negative ways. I didn't know that was going on at the time. I didn't know I was any different than anybody else. But, but my head would say things to me kind of like this, kind of like, um, if only you were more like this, then you'd be okay. Or maybe if you can act more like this, then people will like you. And it would say things to me like, like you really don't fit in. They're really talking about you behind your back. You know, you're, you're, you're really not a part of. And that's the kind of, I had that voice going. As a matter of fact, I had an experience up on a mountaintop backpacking just a few years ago. I was crying up there by myself. And, and the, um, 
the experience was I realized that that voice that had been talking to me from childhood on, which I got, I've got a lot of freedom from it today, but it still comes up. It still comes up sometimes. But that voice is almost like a father figure that's been following me around telling me, I wish you were more like so-and-so. If you were more like this, then you'd be okay. And we would call a father like that abusive, right? But it, my father wasn't talking to me that way. That's my own head talking to me. And thank God, I found an answer. I found a way to shut that voice up. I drank. The first time I got enough in me to feel it, that voice went away. And I got out of my head. And I got out here into the world with you guys. All the things that voice had been telling me are not true. You know, I know that. But it's hard not to listen to that voice when it won't shut up. But alcohol shut it up. All I knew at the time was drinking was a lot of fun. But what I can tell you today, what I know now, is that life is amazing. But I couldn't experience life because I was trapped in this head. And alcohol got me out of this head, and then I could experience how amazing life is. And that's what it did for me. Now, if you guys listen to a lot of speakers, obviously. Have you heard similar stories to that over and over and over? We heard a couple tonight. That's a common experience that we have. But here's the interesting part. That's not what makes me alcoholic. I know this. I spent about 15 years working in a school. The school I worked in as a teacher was the school that you go to when you get kicked out of your school. Yeah, some of you guys went to that school. I see, yeah, I see some heads nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked in one of those schools. I worked with teenagers. And, um, and a lot of teenagers have that very same experience. It's uncomfortable being a teenager. But then if you can, you know, have a couple drinks, take a pill, smoke a joint, whatever, you, 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 maybe you'll feel better in your own skin. Does that make all those teenagers alcoholic? Well, no. No, it doesn't. Some of them. I mean, I had a couple, I'm pretty sure, you know. I don't want to diagnose anybody, but, but no, no, that's not it. So what is it then? What is it that makes me alcoholic? And if you're one of the ones that stood up with 90 days or less, welcome. Welcome. Really glad you're here. But listen to this. This is really, really important. As a matter of fact, it's the most important piece of information I've ever been given in my entire life. It's a huge piece a huge piece of the puzzle to why I'm standing up here as a hopeless alcoholic with 20 years of sobriety. And here's that information. What makes me alcoholic is two things. Number one, once I start to drink, I lose control over what happens next. Sometimes it looks like, let's hit happy hour, have a couple drinks, and then go home. And those couple go down smooth and fast, you know what I mean? But the plan is to have a couple and go home. There's a plan. There's always a plan, right? Have a couple and go home. That's the idea. When they go down fast and smooth, I change my mind and I think, you know what, I'm going to have one more. It won't take long. And that one goes down fast and smooth too, so I decide to have another one. Next thing you know, I'm going to have to call home and tell a lie because I was supposed to be home a long time ago. And then next thing you know, the bar's closing and I'm looking for the party. That's how it goes sometimes. Sometimes I mean to have two 
and then I lose control. And what's really going on is I know that I can't drink the way I want to drink if I go home. That's what's really going on. That may not be in the front of my mind, but it's going on in here somewhere. I know that, so I'm not going home because i got to continue to drink. But sometimes it doesn't look like that. Sometimes it looks like, let's get drunk and have fun. Right? That bugged me when I first came into AA because people kept talking about this idea of I planned on having two and instead I had, I don't know, 47 or whatever. But that's not the way it went for me most of the time. Most of the time it was let's get drunk and have fun. But probably what I should have said instead of let's get drunk and have fun is I know what let's do tonight. Let's get drunk and I'll hit on your wife and you beat me up and they'll throw me out of the bar and I'll peel out in the parking lot and hit a parked car and I'll get arrested and I'll go to jail and I'll lose my job and I'll get kicked out of the house. How's that sound? (laughs) Because even when I went out to get drunk, I still didn't understand the lack of control that I have once I put alcohol in my system. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, I got the answer to that problem right now, really quickly. We'll get this out of the way. If the problem that I have is that I lose control and suffer a lot of consequences when I put alcohol in my system, the answer is don't put alcohol in my system. If you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. Problem solved. Which brings up problem number two (laughs) that makes me alcoholic. And this one is not an alcohol problem. See, what I just described to you is an alcohol problem. I'm a big book thumper, man. I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've gone around and I've told lots of new people, alcohol's not your problem. And I'm watching their eyes kind of glaze over like, what are you, an idiot? Alcohol's obviously my problem. Well, that's one of my problems. I do have an alcohol problem. It's just not my biggest problem. See, my biggest problem is not an alcohol problem. It's a mental problem. I have a mental problem. I'm strangely insane in my case, in a lot of areas. But the one that makes me alcoholic is I'm strangely insane when it comes to that first drink. Because I've had times in my life where I have a whole lot of good reasons not to pick up that first drink. And I still picked it up. And that's the powerlessness that we're talking about in step one. Yeah, yeah, I do, lose, I do lose control. I'm powerless over drink number two and drink number three and drink number four. Why? Because I took drink number one. And I have an allergy to alcohol that, that creates this phenomenon of craving. But the real, powerlessness, the real powerlessness we're talking about in step one is this. I'm not just powerless over number two, three, four, five, and six. I'm powerless over number one. And that's the really tricky part. And let me, for the new people in here, just let me ask you guys this. To, to the rest of you in here, was there ever a time when you had a really good reason not to drink and you had a lot of consequences and you still picked up that first drink? Anybody have that experience? Okay, okay, so if that's your experience, you're in the right room. Yeah, that's, that's the insanity of alcoholism and that's the hopelessness of alcoholism. 
Has anybody ever relapsed and apologized to your loved ones for picking up another drink? Has anybody ever done that? Of course, yeah, absolutely. And what I'm here to tell you today is if you're an alcoholic like I am, you're apologizing for the wrong thing. And the reason is because as an alcoholic, drink is what I do. For me to apologize to you for picking up the first drink would be like if I have epilepsy and I'm apologizing to you for having a seizure. It's just what happens. It's something that I maybe I was born with. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, but I know it's what I have. I pick up the first drink, and then I lose control, and then I hurt a lot of people, hurt myself, and all that bad stuff happens. And what I like to tell the guys, that when I, I like to go into treatment centers and things like that a lot, and what I like to tell them is this. If I'm an epileptic and I'm driving your kids in my car and I have a seizure and we crash and then I come to you and say, I'm really sorry I had a seizure. And you would say, it's not your fault, man. You have a disease. It's okay. But then what if I said to you, well, I didn't take my medicine this morning. You're like, what? And you drove my kids? So what I'm telling you as an alcoholic, if you're someone who has relapsed and you've apologized to your loved ones for picking up that first drink, you're apologizing for the wrong thing. What you probably should have apologized for is, I'm sorry I didn't get a sponsor. I'm sorry I didn't work the steps. I'm sorry I didn't make all my amends. I'm sorry I didn't start sponsoring people. I'm sorry I quit showing up for my home group. I'm sorry I stopped treating my alcoholism. Because once I stop treating it, I will pick up that first drink. And that's the hopelessness of my condition, is that I'm guaranteed to pick it up. It's just a matter of time. The tricky part, though, for a guy like me, sometimes I can say no. You know, just say no. Remember the Nancy Reagan thing, just say no? Just say no. Okay, just say no. And the book talks about it. It says at certain times. At certain times, I have no effective mental defense against the first drink. I do have an effective mental defense sometimes. Sometimes I avoid those people. Sometimes I stay away from those places. Sometimes I exert my willpower. Sometimes I play the tape all the way through. But guess what? I don't every time. And if you drink the way I drink, it's going to have to be every time. See, a day will come for a guy like me where I'll be having a really good day, and I'll think to myself, man, I've been sober for six months. I'm killing it. I'm doing good. I could probably have one drink. Or there's going to be a really bad day coming along. And I'm going to say the heck with this and pick up a drink, right? But one way or another, I'm not going to be able to stop every single time. I'm not going to be able to stop it. And what happened for me is those last few years, I quit drinking over and over and over pretty much every day. I quit drinking a lot, and I couldn't stay quit. I couldn't make it a day by the end. My mom's the Al-Anon of the family. She organized an intervention for my brother. He walked out. It's like, no, you guys are crazy. So she was thinking, you know, we've got an interventionist. We've got a bed for him in a treatment center. <laughs> he walked out. Should we try Chad? Check out what she did. She got word to me that I had a paycheck to come pick up. 
And she was going to be at this place at this time, and I could come pick it up. I mean, I hadn't had a job in at least two years. But just by chance that there might be a check there, I mean, because I really needed some money, you know. I didn't show up in AA with very much. So I walk in, and they're sitting in a circle, sitting in a chair. Any, any of you guys ever been part of an intervention? They're stressful, man. Bless you if you've done it. Bless you for doing that. You know, people that loved me but hated me at the same time wrote these letters and showed up, and many of them I hadn't seen in a long, long time because I'd pushed everybody out of my life. And a lot of them didn't even like each other. I told you guys I come from dysfunctional family, right? There's a lot of divorce. There's people in that circle that don't speak to each other, but they showed up for me. And they wrote these uncomfortable letters, and they're trying to figure out how to tell me the truth and get the point across without running me out the door, and they're stressed out, right? What a gift that they've given me by doing this. And I walk in that room, and I see them sitting in that circle, and the first thought that pops in my head is, how could they do this to me? Another question for you. Do you think that level of self-centeredness went away when I came into AA? Do you think sobriety solved that self-centeredness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I agreed to go. I went to this little treatment center. I don't know what we did there. Probably a lot of stuff that doesn't work for alcoholics. But they introduced me to you. They sold me a big book for $5. I thought with the cost of this place, they could have slid me a big book for free, you know. I used to say nobody told me to work the steps, they just told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. That's probably not true, I probably didn't hear the other part, but they, I did hear go to meetings and I did, I showed up man, 90 meetings in 90 days is nothing. I was determined not to drink anymore, I really didn't ever want to drink again and the solution that I heard there was go to a lot of meetings and that's what I did man, I showed up, I became a good member of AA, I showed up early, I stayed late, I cleaned out ashtrays, put up chairs, made coffee, chaired meetings, I was on all the committees, gave people rides down to the detox, I did all this, I put my heart and soul into AA. I stayed sober and I stayed sick, very sick. I actually thought if you got the booze off of me, I, I would be okay. You know, I really thought that. That was not the case. And every now and then I have a moment of clarity and go, what is wrong with me? I'm sober and I still live like a crazy person. But what happened is almost a year into sobriety of being a hardcore member of AA and a hardcore member of my home group. I was getting real sick of it. And I was starting to, to contemplate leaving. And I was starting to show up less. Had to change home groups a couple times because I could not stand what this same guy kept saying in the same night, the same story. It was driving me crazy. You guys ever develop any resentments at your home group? Whew. Try not working a program as a member of AA. We will drive you to drink. And I was, I was about ready to go, and I just about talked to myself. And, and man, I'd been sober almost a year. I didn't need this, obviously. I was fine. And then I met this guy. This guy uh, came. I was in Oklahoma City, and this guy uh, came from um, Las Vegas, and, and he was new at the meeting. So I decided after the meeting, I was chairing the meeting. I decided after the meeting I'd talk to him for a few minutes to try to make him feel welcome. And that few minutes turned into about a two-hour conversation on the front steps of that, of, of that, uh, that clubhouse. And what he did in those two hours is he 12-stepped me. 
He explained to me what I just explained to you about alcoholism. He gave me the most important piece of information that I've ever received in my life, and he deeply disturbed me. He did not share his experience, strength, and hope. He made me hopeless. And that's the key. He gave me a fatal dose of alcoholism. And what he was telling me based on his own experience, when I put that up against my experience, I knew it was true. And I was deeply disturbed by this conversation. And he let me sit there quietly, deeply disturbed. And you know what I was disturbed about? I suddenly realized that I probably wasn't going to stay sober. I was probably going to talk my way out of AA. And I was probably going to drink again because I saw it happen over and over. But I didn't think it happened to me. But after this conversation, I realized it was going to happen to me. And then, after letting me sit there disturbed for a little while, he said, Chad, I think I know what you need. I looked up and I said, okay, Dave, what do I need? He said, I think you need a spiritual awakening as a result of the 12 steps. I was like, oh, I know what you're talking about. I have that reading memorized. We read it every night at my home group. So I worked the steps with him and had an amazing experience. I had an amazing spiritual experience with a God I didn't believe in and I didn't care anything about talking about. I would hear people in the meeting talk about let go and let God and trust your higher power and all that nonsense and i just block it all out. And that's what I brought into the 12 steps. I had a big problem with step two. Big problem because I'm agnostic, atheist, whatever you want to call it. I thought all that religious stuff was nonsense. And I don't care. You can call it a power greater than yourself, but I know what you're talking about. You're talking about God. I remember sitting in church when I was a little kid, looking around the room. We didn't go to church very often, holidays, and when mom felt guilty, you know. I'm a little kid sitting in church looking around going, you guys believe this stuff? And you're grown-ups. Come on. That's what I brought into AA. That's the conception of God I brought into AA. I had a big problem with step two. But, but it didn't keep me from doing what I was asked to do because I was clear on step one. So that's what I want to challenge. If there's anybody in here that's struggling with step two and it's got you stuck, if there's anybody in here struggling with this God idea and it's got you stuck, here's what I want to challenge you with. If you've got a step two problem that keeps you from working the rest of the steps, it's not a step two problem, it's a step one problem. Because once I become clear on what it means to be alcoholic and I'm clear that I have it, I'll pray. I'll write inventory, I'll make amends, I'll do all that stuff because I don't want to drink again and I know it's going to happen if I don't take some action. Fast forward a little bit, I moved down to, to Austin, Texas when I had about five years sober and met my sponsor now and got involved in a primary purpose group and, and got into some hardcore AA and I, I met a man who died back in 2010 named Mark Houston and, and you know, if, um, if you get nothing else out of this tonight, if you're really into AA, Find some Mark Houston recording somewhere and listen to it. He's, it's amazing. It, it really, really changed my life. Um, got involved with some big book AA, some hardcore big book AA. You know, and, and I remember a guy saying to me, Chad, I take my recovery very seriously so I don't have to take my life so seriously. And man, I relate to that today. You know, and I know you guys are doing it in here. You're taking this deal seriously and out there on the streets you're laughing and having a good time. And that's the way this thing works. I learned a lot of good stuff when that big book really started to come alive for me. I learned a whole new thing. I, le I, learned a, I, I learned what I just told you, a very 
clear, simple way to explain alcoholism to a newcomer. I learned that. That's very important. And sometimes not a newcomer. Sometimes it's somebody with a few years and untreated alcoholism wondering why their life is in shambles, but they're sober. It's a very strong, clear message to have for somebody. Very valuable to carry it into a treatment center, an institution, a jail, whatever it may be. I learned how to do that. I learned something completely new about the third step. I thought it was a prayer. Let's just turn it over, you know, let go and let God. But here's what I found out when I was there. I found out there's information on pages 60, 61, and 62 of our big book. That's really important. Here's why it's important. I've got a hopeless condition called alcoholism. It's killing me. The only solution is a spiritual awakening, but I can't have one. And the reason I can't have a spiritual awakening is because I live on the basis of self-will. I'm constantly trying to arrange life to suit me. I'm obsessed with it. I don't have a relationship with life. I have a relationship with the way I think life should be. And that's all I ever think about. I gave my mind a job somewhere, I don't know when, I told my mind, look, here's your job from now on. Arrange my life so that I never have to experience any discomfort or any inconvenience. And my mind's been running hard ever since. And I'm telling my mind, God, would you please slow down? And my mind's like, I'm doing my job. You asked me to. And it's not qualified. It's not qualified. And what I found out in the third step is that I cannot experience God while I'm playing God. And now I really understand what we're doing in this third step. I'm making the decision to stop trying to arrange life to suit me. I'm going to place it in God's hands and trust God with it. And then you know what I find out? I can't do that either. Anybody ever tell you when you first get sober, stop lying, tell the truth, be honest. Have some courage. Walk through your fears. How about acceptance is the answer to all my problems? Anybody ever tell you that stuff? can't be, I'm obsessed with what I'm afraid of. I can't make it till 10 a.m. without telling three or four lies. Acceptance? Come on. I can't accept anything the way it is. All I can think about is how it ought to be. But what I can do is write a fourth step. I can read it to my sponsor. I can go home and meditate for an hour and take that stuff into six and seven. I can go around and clean up the past, make all those amends. I can learn a spiritual way of living, a disciplined, methodical, spiritual way of living in steps 10 and 11. And I can go out there and carry the message and work with others. And you know what happens when I do that? I start to get honest. I start to accept things as they are. I start to automatically welcome life and embrace it just as it comes to me with, a, with peace of mind and trust that God's going to take care of this. It starts to happen automatically. It's like Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. Paint the fence or whatever it is. I don't know. Do this stuff and watch what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I also learned this. Where I came from in AA, 
for the first five years of my sobriety, I never had more than one, maybe two sponsees at a time. And a lot of times I had none. And I, when I came down to Austin and we talked about that, and they told me I probably should be sponsoring more people if I really wanted to experience the gifts this program has to offer. I said, well, you know, anytime anybody asks me, I take them on. I don't say no. I said, well, you might want to go out and get some. I said, well, you know, it's a program of attraction rather than promotion. <laughs> They said to me, Chad, that's our public relations policy. <laughs> that's not our 12-step method. If you want to experience the gifts this program has to offer, go carry this message. If you don't have anybody right now to do it with, go find them. Go find them. They're out there waiting. God's waiting on you to take some action. He's going to put some people in your lives. And then what happened is my conversation with my sponsor stopped being like this. I can't believe she didn't text me back. And it turned into things more like, how do I help this guy? He has a problem with this. And what do I do when a guy says this? And my problems became much less important. And what I found, and what our big book is so clear about, it's amazing how many things that I finally realized after years of sobriety with people pounding into my head, and then I opened the big book and I'm like, oh, it says it right there. What I found is that that's the solution to alcoholism, carrying this message and working with others. Turns out that is the answer. The answer to alcoholism is to carry this message and work with others. But here's the thing. In order to do that, I've got to do it from a place of surrender. And how do I get to a place of surrender? I don't just surrender. That's way too easy for a complicated guy like me. I get to a place of surrender through the 11 steps before step 12. Those steps put me in a place of surrender that allows God to work through me to help you. It's like a superpower. You think I can drink when God's working through me to help somebody else? Absolutely not. So guys, thanks for having me out here. That's why we do what we do. And I'm so grateful to be a member of AA, and I'm grateful to get to speak at the Atlantic Group. Thank you.